Hello and welcome to Setting the Stage, Episode 21, Onslaught 6, and Erda. Uh, this episode is a little late this week because I've been on vacation, so sorry about that. But uh, let's get into it. Okay, today I'm here with uh, Onslaught 6. Uh, unusual for going with a, a screen name there than a, instead of a more real name. Um, yeah, what what made you go with that? Uh, well, um. So, so we were talking about um, this off mic uh, in, in the Prestige, the Christopher Nolan movie from like oh six. Uh, there's a moment where Hugh Jackman's character says to his wife, who's trying to get him to use his real name as his stage name. He's a musician, a uh, magician, not a musician. I'm a musician. Right. right. He's a magician. <laughs> and um, he he says, "I promised my family I wouldn't embarrass them with my theatrical endeavors." And I just, I've never been a big fan of my legal name, uh, especially my last name. I got made fun of it in school, and, and mm-hmm. I just, uh, I'm, I wasn't into it. And uh, so, and also, I grew up on the internet in the early 90s, well, the mid, mid to late 90s. And, right. um, and the whole mantra there was, never tell anyone your real name, never tell anyone your real <laughs> gender, and never tell anyone where you live. Don't ever tell anyone those three things. And so I very early on took that to heart. I was like, I need a, I need a handle. I need a name. They say that in hackers. It's like, I'm not real till I have a handle. Right. So yeah. I, I did that. And um, uh, I came up with this one uh, based on some embarrassing and uh, quickly outdated Transformers fanfic. And I haven't had anything better since 2002. So I'm stuck with it. Um, it's, a, it's a Transformer name? Yeah. Okay, I had no idea. Uh, Onslaught is a relatively obscure character from 1986, and uh, there's a long history of him getting re-releases, and it doesn't matter. <laughs> it's stupid. Okay. <laughs> uh, I, all right, I'll I'll leave that alone. I'm not a big Transformers fan. I was just curious where it came from. Yeah, we it, it would get we would talk for a half hour about it if <laughs> about why it's that. So it's not important. Okay. All right. Uh, so usually, I also ask people who they are outside of D and D. Sounds like you might not want to get into that. You mentioned you're a mus- musician, though. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I I'm I'm fine talking about my life. Deal. I um I was in a metal like a solo metal industrial project for 15 years under the name Onslaught Six and uh, 15. Yeah. Jeez. Okay. <laughs> Where um. Where cool. my first song was a song called Tidal Wave, which is where my um my game company Tidal Wave Games gets its name from. Uh, that's mm-hmm. also another Transformers reference because I'm a big old dopey Hasbro shill. <laughs> I, I mean that's that's the whole RPG business basically. That's, is. Yeah. So so that happens, and um, you know, I just made industrial metal for 15 years, and uh, I'm in a synthwave band with my wife. Um, kind of make stuff sometimes okay yeah that sounds fun i've i'm i married into a musical family so i've i've learned some stuff from them but myself i was never that musical growing up mm-hmm. yeah i was i was big into just listening to like industrial metal all the time if it came from the mid 90s and had distortion on the vocals i was in okay uh so can you give me an example bands like i'm i'm Probably heard Nine of Inch Nails, before. Skinny Puppy, um, okay. KMFDM a little bit. Okay. Just yeah. like that. Yeah, I know Nine Inch Nails. 
Um, yeah. Mostly through my Johnny Cash love and then going into them through Hurt, but whatever. Mm-hmm. I got there. Um, how did you start playing D&D? Um, I have... So, this is the fun story. We were a big board game family. Uh-huh. We would go around yard sales in the late 90s and early 2000s. Just If there was a board game and it was under $10, we bought it. We didn't even care if it was missing all the pieces or whatever. Because chances were good we could cobble something together. Even if, if if the game is missing all the pawn pieces, you just open up Sorry and you have 16 new pawn pieces. Yeah, did you ever get a cheap-ass game? What do you mean? It's, it's a... It's an actual like um, company called Cheap Ass Games, where they made games without pieces because they knew that you had stuff from no, like, Monopoly or Sorry. I did yeah. I'm not familiar with that. Yeah, it was out. like a early 2000s company. I don't think they've produced anything recently, but they're still selling their stuff. Um, where yeah, it's basically just a rule set and a board, and they say, you know, we know you have dice, we know you have pieces, yeah. figure right. it out. Okay. Yeah, that's cool. So, well, that was a lot of what we were doing. Yeah. And one day we see a a box that is like oh it's ghostbusters it's a ghostbusters board game it's in a pile of other board games we mm-hmm. pick it up it's like ten dollars we take it home we throw it in the closet of board games and we don't think about it again for two years right <laughs> one day we're like hey we're really bored we say mom let's play that ghostbusters game that we bought at the yard sale like two years ago or whatever mm-hmm. and so she op- she's like okay and she opens it up and it's just stacks of books and cards there's no board there's nothing like that and then she's like reading through the thing and she goes we're not playing this and i go what why not and she goes well all the players have to read this book and she holds up this like 32 page book and then she says and one of the players has to read this other book that's 120 some pages long she's like i don't have time to do all that i don't that's complicated this is ghostbusters how complicated should it be right and so she puts it away and that's it um kind of around the same time I am very interested in Japanese role-playing games and computer role-playing games. Um, one in particular, which is called Wizardry. It's an NES port of an old like Apple II game, and it's basically an AD&D simulator. It literally has Thacko in it. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah, it literally has that in it, and it has all the familiar classes and races that we're familiar with from those days right and it's just you go into the dungeon it's like a first person dungeon crawl and there are orcs and kobolds and stuff like that and so as i'm like bumming around on the early internet trying to figure out how to play this stupid game because the copy protection for the game is that all of the spells are like nonsense words and you need the manual to look up what the spells are in order to cast them i actually have the manual right here just because i always keep it around for inspiration uh, the first level, the v- very first level one cleric spell. Spell name, Kalki. Translation, blessings. And then it reduces the AC of all party members by one point and makes them harder to hit. Okay? Reduces the skills of Thacko, right. Right. What if you, if you just go in the game, it's like Kalki or Dios. And I'm like, what do these mean? So I have to look them up on the early internet. And as I'm like reading it, I discover that these are based on a tabletop game called Dungeons and Dragons. And so the the idea of the tabletop role-playing game enters my brain for the first time. And then one day I'm looking through the board game thing and I see the Ghostbusters box again. And I see that it says a frightfully cheerful role-playing game. And I say, wait, what? And now for the first time as like a 12-year-old, I open it up sort of with the context of what a role-playing game is and go, oh no, this is a Dungeons and Dragons. 
but it's Ghostbusters. And that's where I come into it. Gotcha. And then from there, you know, I, I read a bunch of uh, third edition stuff that I pirated in the mid 2000s. And uh, yep. I never played it. I didn't play it until um, fifth edition came out. No, that's not true. Uh, during the four, around, right, about 10 years ago. Yeah, because I was still in the apartment. Uh, my friend ran an online game over. It would have been Skype back then. Yeah, ran a game yeah. over Skype in 3.5. But, yeah, that was uh, about when I was transitioning to Roll20 was, yeah, 10 years ago. But uh, it wasn't really um, well run or we, we weren't really following the rules or giving a shit. We were just having fun. Uh, honestly, everyone's first campaign is pretty much like that. Right. <laughs> yeah. You don't have some older person to rein you in that's been playing for years that wants to play by the rules, then you're, right. you're, you're not going to. <laughs> Anyway, and then around 2018, uh, me and some friends, we picked up the 5th edition starter set, and uh, we mm -hmm. tried to play it, and we were upset that we couldn't make our own characters, so we bought the player's handbook, and we went from there. Okay. Yeah. Um, so when did you transition to being more of a, a DM? Was that in 2018, or um, We started playing in January of 2018, and I literally think by, by July, I had started my own game. Okay. I I had tried running my own game and it at first didn't go well um because uh I was I had a feeling I had run the Ghostbusters game a little bit for my like my brother and my dad and that didn't go well either because I was 12 years old. Yeah, yeah. Um and didn't really and I and I don't think they actually wanted to play so it's sort of like I'm dragging them through this horrifying experience as I confusingly don't understand all the rules and everything. Uh, so, so what happened was I was, I'm reading the Lost Minds of Fandelver adventure and I'm like, okay, well, this is the starter set adventure. It's gotta be, this, this is what they recommend you start with. I'm a newer DM. I think I have a handle on this because in the, in the intervening years, I had been like D and D curious. I had really, um, there was one moment I remember where I started watching, um, the Acquisitions Inc. videos that Penny Arcade does. Uh-huh which is like their, their actual play. And Chris Perkins, who is uh, one of the 5th edition lead designers and, right. and who's worked at Wizards of the Coast since like 97 and m might be one of the best DMs in the world, um, was running them through this. And I didn't know he was Chris Perkins who works for d and I thought he was Jerry's DM. I thought he was like an old <laughs> friend of Jerry's who was their DM. That's what I thought. So I'm just watching him run the game and I'm and I'm looking at him and I'm like, I think I could probably do this. Right? It doesn't seem like what he's done is that hard. I, I, I guess there's an element of that, but uh, okay. <laughs> I didn't I didn't know that he was literally one of the best doing it, but whatever. And so I'm like, well, okay, you know, this adventure is designed to have me start start it. And so I I had my own, but I had the problem is I had my own ideas. The players get to the uh, Red Brand hideout, and the Red Brand hideout is, if you haven't played the adventure or seen it, there's a bunch of human bandits who live in a basement in town, and that's all that's going on. It's the most, and, and I'm reading it, and I'm in my head, I'm like, this is the most banal, boring, trite shit that I've ever read. Yeah, it's like I'm the like, first like, mission like, in every Elder Scrolls game where it's just like, we, oh, we yeah, go into a basement. We have years of history for this game, and this is what you're giving me? 
in my head, I was like, this will be more interesting if even if the stats didn't change or even the situation, but they're dwarves. Suddenly that's more interesting to me. And but in my head, I'm like, I won't change it. I'm just going to run it as it's written and see what happens. And it was a disaster because I was dispassionate about the material and that showed in my DM. And the players started to screw around and, and act out and not take it seriously. And it fell apart as a mm-hmm. result of that. Gotcha. And so a couple more months go by and my main DM for the game has to take a break. Like we're, like we're playing a weekly game and then I run a, another game for some friends and it falls apart. And then my DM for that other game, he has to take a break. He has some family stuff. He's like, I can't play maybe ever again or maybe maybe this will only be a couple months. Maybe it won't be at all. And I'm like, well, okay, I've, I've ran a couple times. Let's see what ha- I'll step up and see what happens. And I immediately am like, okay, I'm not going to use that adventure because I'm not inspired by it. What adventures am I inspired by? There's 50 mm-hmm. years of history here. There's got to be something. And I right. start watching Matt Colville's videos uh, online because I'm like, well, if I'm going to do this, somebody, I, I look up, you know, how do I get started DMing? And Matt Colville's videos start to come up. This is in like 2018, 2019. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those are right? good videos. And and so he recommends the adventure N one against the cult of the reptile god, and it's like five dollars online. And I go re- I read it, and I'm like, this is really cool. I'm inspired by this. There's an, a town with an evil cult to a reptile god. It's right there in the title. Right. Uh, the dungeon is really cool and inspiring. There's all sorts of weird stuff. And yeah, it's a it's a first edition adventure, but an owlbear is an owlbear if it's 1979 or 2009. Or 2019, like it doesn't. It's the same. It's they don't change that much, and yeah. so I I ran that, and we had a blast, and everything booked together. Then, okay, cool, yeah, yeah. It does seem like you could just basically drop the the first edition stats and use the fifth edition stats and make it work. That's exact. That's exactly what I've done. I've run edition. I've ran adventures for every edition of the game in fifth edition, and that's how it works. Okay. Yeah, fourth edition seems like that'd be the hardest one to to transfer that way. Nope. Nope. I ran a whole one to five campaign based on a fourth edition book called Reavers of Harkenwald, and it was a blast. Okay. But I cool. also one of the things I did is the first thing I did when I got against the cult of the reptile god is it is written in 1981. So every NPC is a human and a male. That's just yep. the way that, that's just the attitude of the people who made the game. So the first thing I did was I made a list of all the NPCs that were in the town and I crossed out a bunch of names and rewrote them to either be female or a dwarf or an orc or a half elf or whatever, you know? Right, right. And and that process alone of just being like, I don't like this. I'm going to change it. It's my game. Immediately instilled a sense in me of like i can change whatever i want it's okay and it'll my my senses of what's gonna be fun are better than whoever wrote this adventure who doesn't know who me or my group is yeah i think that is one of the the things that's best for modules like i always had this fear that i was gonna like Mess something up because I remembered it wrong and it was going to affect some other part of the module. So I had to like 90% really... of the time it doesn't affect the rest of the module, right? Yeah, and in the 10% that it does, the players don't know that yet, so you can fix it, <laughs> right? Exactly, yeah. But I mean, when I was running modules, I didn't have that that concept yet. I was still being like, oh, I, I gotta do it the way it's supposed to be done. Um, 
because like you, I was also using modules before I, I wanted to do my own stuff. Uh, I'm, I'm assuming you're doing your own stuff now. Is that right? No, I still run modules. Every oh, okay. What I usually do is I, here's the thing. I use modules as inspiration in source books now. Uh -huh. What I, I do is like, and I tell people this, you can buy a, a module and just take the maps and use nothing else from it. Just take the maps that are in that and write your own encounters around it. Or take a map that you found in one place and take the encounters from another thing and just stick them both together. And now you have a whole new thing that's a unique experience that no one else is going to have. Um, I've I just, definitely taken I, maps from stuff. That's good advice. I'm running a big, big uh, Underdark crawl right now that <laughs> uh, is almost done. And um, I took this Mushroom Cave map from Dyson Logos, and I took two encounters from the Dragon Hatchery that are in Horde of the Dragon Queen because <laughs> the plot is sort of that uh, all of these Dragonborn have taken a bunch of money um, and they're a cult of uh, Takesis, and they're going to use all of the money, which is actually the money that's at the end of the 5th edition module, Dragon Heist. They stole that money out from, the, okay. <laughs> out from some other group of players, and then they've transported it across the world so that they're going to summon Takesis at the Pool of Radiance from 1st edition uh, and, and the, the PC game Pool of Radiance. That location, uh, but the dungeon around it is the Gates of Firestorm Peak from 2nd Edition. But this last Underdark encounter, I used a map from Dyson Logos, I used the Dragon Hatchery stuff from Horde of the Dragon Queen, and I used a bunch of Myconid stuff from a different adventure that I bought for like $3. Damn, that, that yeah. uh, <laughs> is a lot of stitching together to make that work. But it's just, it's just like one little part here, one little thing there, this, that, and the other. And now I have I have a list of like six things, and that's my game for tonight. Cool. Yeah, I've uh, I've never done something that extreme with using modules, where I'm like, yeah, using kind of like five different modules that you're putting together to make a single adventure. Bits and pieces of each. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so are you setting your your campaign in in Greyhawk, Forgotten Realms, or like is this all sort of in your own setting that you're making everything fit in? Every fifth edition game that I have ever run takes place in my own setting. Okay. Uh, in fact, all of them take place in the same two months month period. I have a calendar to keep track so that none of the characters run into each other. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> <laughs> Just two months? Like, so time hasn't really passed at all? It's all like the uh, same? No. Well, the current campaign that I'm in is in the, it's the first one that's in the future of those two months. Just because I had to... I had to set it that way because it's a sequel to one of the other things. Okay. But I got these guys doing the one thing in the city, and these guys are doing this up here, and these guys are there. But they all take place within the same world. So uh, they, they all have little references to each other. Characters go from one campaign to the next. Okay. I've never heard of a DMing strategy this way where you're, you're just using modules and then still putting a ton of your own spin on it. Uh, like I've heard of people doing like adventure paths, you know, where they just do the the whole like N one through N five kind of thing for the against the cold of the reptile god, for example. Mm -hmm. Um, but your way is really unique. I like it. Yeah, I like to just grab like overarching plots and then slot in other stuff on the side because one of my other um philosophies is that I don't. I think the world should be alive, 
and not focused on the players. Meaning that even if the players are on this A to B plot, there should be a completely unrelated plot that intersects in the middle and then they never see again. Mm -hmm. uh, I was I was running a one of my other campaigns where uh, an important NPC gives the players a job. He says, hey, go. These orcs are transporting cargo to the bad guy's stronghold. Um, we found out this because we have scouts. Go intercept the cart and steal what they have. That way they don't have the supplies. We don't even know what the supplies are, but we, we know it's going to the bad guy fortress, so it has to be important. And right. so they go there, and there are these orcs, and they have a big caravan. And one of the players is like, I'm going to sneak into the caravan, and I'm going to look and see what they're transporting so we have an idea of what they're dealing with. And it's a big dragon egg, right? Ooh. And so they're like, oh, it's a dragon egg. This is bad, right? And then as they're about to ambush the orcs, a bunch of drow show up and kill the orcs and also start attacking the players. And then once the orcs are all dead, the players are like, hold on, let's, let's talk here. What's going on? And the drow are like, we're here for the dragon egg. And the players are like, well, our job is only to make sure that our bad guy doesn't get the dragon egg. The letter of the law doesn't say, we, don't, we actually don't care who has the dragon egg, <laughs> as long as it's not the bad guy. Okay. So you guys can just have it. And the drow are like, okay, happy trails, thanks. And they go away. Well, that dragon egg is important for another one of my campaigns that I'm running at the same time as this one, that these, this group of players doesn't even know exists. Wow, okay. Right? And so the, a couple months later, one of my players is like, what happened with that, those drow and that dragon egg? And I'm like, well, let me tell you. It turns out this, that, and the other is happening in one of my other games. And they're like, wait, that's the same, the same world? And I'm like, it's... And then I showed him my, my world hex map. And I'm like, yeah, here's Harkenwald where you guys are. They're going to Dawn Harbor, which is down south. And he goes, I'm from Dawn Harbor. And I'm like, I know. I told you about that city because it exists in my world. And I've ran in it for, you know, the last year. Yeah, that is really cool. I like that. Well, uh, let, let's get into the campaign world then. Um, what's the, the physical world like? Um, the map itself is, I, I call it, it's the, the, um, geography of it is the, the people in the world really consider it two continents, like a East half and a West half, but it's uh -huh. really just one continent and it's the exact layout of the United States. Uh, okay. Yep. I just, I took the United States and I even took the mountains and all of that stuff. And I just overlaid fantasy stuff on it. Uh, more and, common uh, than you'd think it would be. Yeah. Well, I just needed a shape, and it was one that I'm familiar with. And there's a South Continent that I often reference that I have literally no development on. Um, I have um, every ancestry that is in the player's handbook is available, and no other ones are there. The exception is half-orcs. Half-orcs don't exist in my world. You just play an orc. Okay. Um, and... Uh, what else? I, I have lots of stupid lore that probably no one cares about to make all of my, my fantasy ancestries different. Uh, um, well, that's, that's what we're here for. So you said, let's start with orcs. Uh, well, the orcs... So my orcs are basically like the next generation Klingons. Right? It's like a okay. long time ago, there was a big orc war. And then one guy came and he like united a bunch of the disparate orc tribes. And then he went to government and was like hey we would really like to not be nomadic raiders anymore uh 
and and like they lost a war a long time ago and were like forced to be nomadic raiders and like their religion was taken from them. and mm. this guy like found an old orc religious text that referred to like a messiah coming back to unite the tribes and it's like i found the text clearly that's me <laughs> okay it's i mean it says in the text that he who finds it shall unite the th- and he's like clearly that's me and everybody's like go for it and there are some orc groups that are like that guy's a false prophet we don't like him he can he can you know go do what he wants and as a result those guys become like outliers they become bandits and the mm. rule is like orc bandits are treated as bandits first and orcs second if you find a group of orcs you wouldn't attack them on site any more than you would attack elves or dwarves there can be dwarves who are doing bad things there can be orcs that are doing bad things and there can also be orcs that are doing good things okay yeah so how long ago did that happen within your your campaign world um within the lifetime of this one dude so i'm not 100 percent. no one knows how long orcs live because they normally don't live to see old age gotcha oh the uniting of the orc clans was 20 years ago according to my document okay cool cool this this is this is this is my other thing. I don't know anything unless I've written it down and have to go look at it. <laughs> that's that's just fine. Everyone's got their own system for stuff. Uh, the current year twenty six twenty nine. I knew it had a nine. Twenty six twenty nine. What's the All what's the that counting based off of? Um, it counts from the date of dwarven and elven first contact. Okay. Because um the so the dwarves um are atheists and they're atheists because they used to believe that the gods roamed along the surface of the world. And then one day they got to the surface of the world and there were elves. These tall, thin, wafy things that didn't even have beards. Oh man. And they're like, Okay, clearly these aren't the gods. <laughs> of course. The gods must not exist. <laughs> I I fully understand that reasoning. And and so then the elves are like, okay, well, come to our village, hang out. And then like a couple hours go by and the sun goes down and they start freaking out because they're like, what's going on? What's go- Why is it getting dark? And they're like, that's the sun. And they're like, when, what is, what is, and they're like, this happens every day. What's, this happens all the time. What's like, day? Every, all the, yeah, well, they're like, what's day? And they're like, I don't know the time between when the sun and the sun goes down and the moon comes up and then the moon goes down and the sun comes up and the dwarves are like, how long has it been doing this? And they're like forever. And they're like, how many times has it happened though? And they're like, I don't know forever. And they're like, you don't count it. Why don't you count it? Oh my God. This literally is insane to us. We need to start counting literally from now. Ah, uh, okay. And there's the number. <laughs> so it's, it's been 26 hundred and twenty nine day- years and a year is how many years is it ten months in a year two ten days is a month a ten days is ten days right oh and the days are literally in uh dwarvish they translate to one day two day three day etc gotta do the counting yeah <laughs> like the dwarves are just very interested in order and uh and systematic stuff in fact the the thing that bothers them the most the dwarves consider this a personal failing the world has three moons but the way they rotate it looks you only ever see two of them okay right and so 
the dwarves think there everybody thinks there are two moons and the fact that the dwarves can't figure out the rotation of the two moons to align with the calendar is like a moral failing on their part they consider they're like if only we were better we would be able to reconcile the two moons cycle with the calendar but we can't and it's because they don't know there's a third moon that fucks the whole thing up so they they can't tell the difference by just looking at it it the rotation of them is so messed up and the way the the shadows are i'm not a scientist so i don't actually know how this works i just mean like our moon has like a distinctive pattern on it that it was different you would probably notice i don't know man it's a fantasy world okay cool cool <laughs> This this is where like uh, there there is some degree of I don't know man I just work here. That's that's fair. I mean, uh, easy explanation is there aren't asteroids that are giving those kinds of shapes to the moon, so it's just flat. Yeah, I mean, no one's ever been to the moon in my game, so I haven't had to pick it up. Yeah, that's the that's kind of the other thing is I have only barely made it up if I'm gonna use it. Yeah, yeah, that's a good rule to have. So, the, so the stuff that I've like ran campaigns in and around is like highly developed and detailed, and then the stuff that isn't is just nothing. Like I have almost nothing for halflings because no one has played a halfling. Oh, okay. Well, you were mentioning like dwarves and elves right after the orc Klingon thing. I thought they were going to be like uh, humans and uh, Vulcans, but that sounds like that is not how that meeting went. Oh no, no, it didn't. No, because the elves are very accepting. They're they're basically a utopia, except within themselves, because they are constantly there's there's like a cold war between the wood elves and the high elves. Oh, okay. Why is that? You'd have to ask an elf. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Uh, I'll get right on that. <laughs> okay. So the... I mean, it, it was it was before the dwarves showed up. So who knows? But but the elves can like. They can actually change their gender and relative appearance uh-huh. at will. And um, so, so like, their, their whole society has, like, no gender norms, right? They don't, they don't care about stuff like that. So they're super accepting of, like, gay people and trans people and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And, like, their whole society is just, like, we, we accept all sorts of different people. We don't care about stuff like that. And the dwarves have no gender. They're just one gender. Okay. Uh, their pronoun is dwarf. Uh- <laughs> Cool. How, how does that work for reproduction for them? Or is they, are they... they they build new dwarves out of rocks? Oh, okay. Mm, I can. And they they grind down gems to uh to make magic to imbue them with with that. And as a result, when um this is actually this bleeds into all my other games because a lot of these ideas are just my ideas, and so they bleed into my other stuff like crawl, um, um, like when dwarves die, they become stone again. So dwarven undead are like, like stone golems. Oh, cool. Uh, what did you mean by crawl? There is a, another. Uh... Uh, yeah, crawl is a game. So, so the main thing that I do at Tidal Wave Games is I developed a game called CU Space Cowboy, which is a cowboy bebop and other '90s space anime inspired uh, tabletop RPG where you hunt bounties for money and deal with your past trauma and make friends along the way. Maybe the real bounty was the friends we made along. I don't know. <laughs> and, uh, and I made like a low fantasy hack of it called Crawl that I'm still working on. Oh, okay. Um, that I'm also explicitly building my Dungeon 23 dungeon to be set in. And that takes place in an entirely different world that basically 
is just all the unique stuff that I've built without all of the stuff that I had to put into my world because it's in D&D. Right. Okay. Like, uh, like as I'm sort of developing the idea of this world, I'm like, I don't need goblins or kobolds or bugbears or things like that. These are not things that interest me. Or halflings, it sounds like. Uh, no, halflings are in there. They're called fobbits. Okay. <laughs> I just don't have anything for them is all. Okay. I'm interested in them. I like them. And if a player came to me and was like, can I be a hot halfling? I'd be like, okay. And then I would figure out what their deal is. But nobody has came to me and wanted to be a halfling. So I don't really know anything about them. But uh, but yeah, Crawl is, is going to take place in its own world that is has all of this similar uh, ancestry right. cultural stuff that I've invented or stolen from other places because I like it. And, um, and, and it's not going to have things that I don't want, which is like uh, kobolds and, and bugbears and stuff like that. But those things have to be in my D&D world because they're in D&D and, you know, people expect them to be there. Okay. Yeah. No, I I get that. Um, I feel like you still can do that for some of those items, like bugbears. I feel like you could easily ignore in D and D. They don't really. Show oh yeah, that's them. the thing. You, I, I mean, you don't have to do them, but it's like I paid for the book, right? <laughs> true. True. Whereas, whereas for crawl and my dungeon twenty three project, I have to invent the idea of what a bugbear is for my thing, and if. I'm not interested in a bugbear to invent something for it. I just won't have it. I had a question about uh, gods for your world, because you we mentioned like uh, the dwarves coming up and then becoming atheists. Are are there gods in your world? Oh yeah, there are, there are a ton. Um, there are tons of them. There used to be dwarven gods. Actually, when the dwarves were like, "Hey, we've been to the service. Turns out, no gods. <laughs> we're not going to believe in gods anymore." Everybody cool with that? And there was a group of them that were like, actually, no, we think you're stupid. There definitely are gods. They're just higher than the surface, probably. Uh-huh. And or, or maybe they're deeper. Maybe we need to go deeper. We don't we don't know. I never thought we'll figure of that, that out later. Yeah. And so they they split off and they eventually evolve into the Dwagar. Ah, uh, OK. For my world. And so the Dwagar are like dwarven religious fanatics. And they they call themselves the faithful and they call normal dwarves the renegades. Okay. That's pretty cool. Um, it sucks that my Underdark game doesn't have any dwarves in it because that, that I don't get to use any of that. Oh, uh, that's too bad. <laughs> the Dwagar show up. And actually, one of the players used to... He came from another campaign down in Dawn Harbor, and now he's up here in the Underdark. And so he's fought uh, Dwagar before because the Dwagar were the main foot soldiers in my Dragon Heist campaign for the Xanathar. Um, because, like, uh, I ran that campaign, but I did not run it by the book. I used every villain. I ran it at a higher level. And I decided that the Xanathars would, he, he's a beholder. Right. And I think in the book, he mostly has, like, human dudes working for him. And I was like, that's stupid. He should have classic AD&D dungeon monsters working for him. Well, he's got mostly humans because he's in um, Waterdeep, right? Uh, well, my version of Waterdeep is Dawn Harbor. It's different. Okay, of course. And so, so, so it's... It's it's just a little different. I like my name better. I have a different map, and I changed some stuff. Um, but so I was like, he should have like classic dungeon monsters because the idea of I want to rob this bank. Let's send an Umber Hulk to do it is awesome. 
And so whenever whenever I needed just like like four dudes to send against the party who were Xanathar aligned, I used Dwagar. Okay. So this other player has fought a lot of Dwagar, and now they he ran into one, and he immediately wanted to kill it, but he had been screwed up by magic mushrooms. So the rest of the party was like, but "Don't mess with him. He's nice. He's just high." Ah. <laughs> so you're using like the fifth edition Dwagar, right? Not the um the fourth edition ones with like the porcupine quills. No, I'm using the 5th edition. Okay, good. That... They're just dwarves, but they got gray skin. Right. That always struck me as a odd change to make. I mean, 4th edition was full of that. It was like, what? let's re-examine this from a new perspective and do what we think is cool. It might be different than what other people think is cool, and you don't have to use it as a result of that, but it's it's an idea, which is that I find is better than a lot of what 5th edition does, which is like, either not have an idea or have an idea from 1979 that nobody has really re-examined in the intervening. Yes. I know exactly what you mean. Yeah. There were, uh, there are plenty of monsters that feel like there's, there's nothing here in fifth edition where there was much more of an identity in fourth edition that I, I could feel from the, just the mechanics instead of, Oh, it's a giant. It hits with a big club. Yeah. I think I might run a four E game in like 2025. Uh, man if you want to it's there uh, I'm wrapping up my, my fourth edition campaign around now yeah fun doing it I, I did like doing the campaign it's um it's much easier for DMs to run because you can just grab a monster and it is really unique that's, and makes stuff like. really really fun just from like designing encounters um yeah I think if your if your group is like super into like having conversations for four hours and not fighting anything it's probably not good for you right my the people that i play with we if if i'm around the table for an hour and they haven't rolled initiative yet they start looking for things to kill (laughs) yeah i felt like the the game doesn't have a lot of support for stuff outside of combat but D&D never has had a lot of support for stuff outside of combat right that's the thing you you could sit around and have a conversation for an hour in fourth edition and it's going to roll exactly the same way as it does in fifth Right, exactly, yeah. And 4th edition actually, I feel like, had some better support with, like, skill challenges and stuff than 5th yeah. edition did, but um, it's hard to execute that I in a way that's good. I also think that a lot of problems that people have with 5th edition are that it has all these big utility spells that are just, I solved this encounter by using spell slot. Mm-hmm. Yep. And 4th edition doesn't have that because a lot of its powers are explicitly based around combat instead of something else. It has some, like, they call them utility powers, but they're not, not nearly as many. Well, it has the rituals uh, for 4th edition. Yeah, there's that too. But my experience is that my players have mostly ignored those. They've used, like, one, they've used the, mess- the messenger ritual. That's about it. Um, yeah. And, I mean, it's it's there. There's support for it. I even had, like, an adventure that was based around, hey, you guys need to go get rituals because you probably should get some. And then they <laughs> never used them. Um. So I feel like that's yeah, something that maybe I a like different the group idea. would get into. Yeah, go ahead. I love the idea of designing adventures around what is in the game mechanics and like teaching the players the game mechanics. Mm-hmm. In uh, Against the Cult of the Reptile God, I had discovered while reading the rule book after we had been playing for almost a year, the concentration was a thing. Oh. <laughs> we had been playing for a year without concentration. Now we were only like level four, so it was fine. Yeah, yeah. But literally, like we had a... 
we had a warlock who had uh, guidance through some feat or something like that. And before almost anything, he would be like, I smack everybody with guidance. So you all have an extra D4 on, on a roll that you want. <laughs> and it's like, that's not how it works. <laughs> we, you can't hold it because it's a concentration. Right. Spell. You can only give it to one person. Right. And it only lasts 10 minutes. We, he would at the beginning be like, I smack everyone with guidance. And then we would just ha- have this extra D4 all night. Not knowing, and when we would use it, he would go, I run over and I hit you with guidance again, so you have your d4 again. <laughs> so I discovered that concentration was a thing, and I was like, Oh, I should introduce this to the players. How do I do this? And there's an evil priest in uh, against the cult of the reptile god, and so when the players came up to him, I had him use banishment on one of the players, and so I described, I said, He flicks his fingers and he says some words, and you disappear into a whiteless void. You're in a whiteless void. The other two, you just see him disappear. Okay, you, it's your turn now. And he's like, uh, what do I do? And I'm like, your friend just disappeared. What do you want to do? And so they're like begging the evil priest to like bring their friend back. Uh. <laughs> they're like, I don't. And I'm like, why are you doing this? And they're like, well, w- what if we hit him and he dies and our friend is trapped in the void forever? I, that's, that's how it works in a lot of other fantasies. Like, uh, I've, Right, right. That's a perfectly reasonable assumption. But finally, someone was like, well, I don't care if our friend is trapped forever. If he's trapped forever, he's trapped forever either way. So I'm just going to kill this guy. And as soon as I hit him, he, I was like, okay, he makes his concentration check because he took damage and he fails and uh, Doc shows back up. Uh, and they're like, his concentration check? And I'm like, yeah, he has to concentrate on that spell. Look at your spells. Some of them might be concentration. <laughs> and then they st- all, now all of a sudden they're all looking at their spells they have written down and they go, oh, this is concentration. What does that mean? And then I explained. <laughs> right. Ah, uh, the hazards of early play. But I think the idea of like designing adventures and parts of your world to teach things to the players is really, really fun. And I think kind of a next level thing that like is beyond just let's get together, kill some orcs and roll some dice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was a, one of my friends was running us through a Pathfinder adventure that's like a intro adventure. Um, so it's supposed to show off all these mechanics. And it's set up as like the, the elders of a town are having you go through like a reenactment of an adventure. It's like you'll fall down a pit trap, but there's a bunch of pillows at the bottom. So it's really just like, hey, this is how a pit trap works. <laughs> um, See, that I, I don't like that because there's no danger. Well, it, there is danger. Like the later on, deeper in the dungeon, you find out the elders got sure, attacked sure. by skeletons that were deeper in the tomb. Okay, so that's all right. Yeah, it, it works out. Um, but uh, yeah, the the initial part of it is like, okay, we're learning this mechanic now. I see. Um, and it's that's great for first time players that aren't coming from other RPGs. I think it's a really good way to learn the system because you get all of these introductions to different parts of the game, and it is. You know, this encounter teaches you about ranged attacks and other stuff like that. Um, but yeah, yeah, that's something. That's something that I'm really trying to um, drill into myself. Is when you're when you're building a dungeon or or a session to look at what your players are capable of mm-hmm. um, in in a general sense and in a specific sense and design it around that. Um, I just recently. I printed out the skills list for crawl so that I have it handy when I'm doing my dungeon 23 thing, which I'm explicitly designing for crawl. So I can look and see what can the players actually do so that I can build something that challenges those abilities. Uh 
Um, and then also, I feel like when when players make choices at character creation, they're making a choice. And so you have to reward that choice at some point. Otherwise, they wasted it. If a player uh, plays a cleric, they have turn undead. If you never fight undead, they wasted their choice being a cleric. Exactly. Now, it's, now clerics have a whole lot of other pieces, and maybe that player doesn't even care about turn undead. It's just something that they get, and they've never looked at it since they got it. Right? That's fine, too. You have to, you have to know your players and what they expect out of the game. But a player who, uh, who like, picks a feat that pushes dudes and they never get to push any dudes, they could have picked a feat that does anything else and had a better time. Yeah, exactly. I've I've seen a lot for on Reddit for some people talking about how like their character becomes immune to a type of damage and then that type of damage, damage stops showing up. up anymore as soon as they're immune to it. I've yeah. I've designed encounters explicitly where it's like, okay, so they are good at this type of damage, so I'm gonna put something in here that's vulnerable to it just because you know I should occasionally reward them for it. Yeah, uh, Sly Flourish calls this a lightning rod. Mm-hmm. He uh he he says that there should be things in your encounters where it's like very obvious what we should do here. Like like if there's a player who likes to banish things, put a big troll there with 130 hit points and a big club, and it's like, oh yeah, it would really suck if this guy got banished right now. Right. And it's like, yeah, you want them to banish it. Yep. Cool. Then they go, we banish it. Okay, he's gone. Yay. And then everybody feels cool, and it's like, gotcha. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah, I've been doing undead for a lot of my campaign. So my, a lot of my players are doing like radiant damage. It's vulnerable, undead are vulnerable too, so they're getting to do bonus damage there. And now they're facing the necromancer in charge of the undead, who knows what they're doing radiant damage and is wearing a ring of radiant resistance. <laughs> they're feeling a little bit bad. Um. Man, I, I feel like we still skipped over the gods because you, you talked more about like the, oh, yeah, the dwarven got, relationship with them, with the, the Dwargar, but um, we didn't talk about like the actual gods up in the sky or wherever they are. Oh, yeah. I got, I got tons of them. I got a whole thing. I got ones I haven't even thought of. <laughs> I, every, uh, every ancestry kind of has their own pantheon uh-huh. that are similar but different. Uh, the humans have one that's all... So the continent's called Erda. Because um, the humans believed that there was air and duh, and then they would, like came together and they built the world together, and then they birthed a bunch of the other gods, and then those gods like, oh, they started a war and all this other stuff happened. Um, there was one named Prometheus. I steal I steal a lot from Greek mythology uh-huh. just because I like it. Um, uh, Prometheus gave magic to humans. Gotcha. Which was not, which was forbidden, and then he was he was cast down to the abyss and uh then he led a rebellion in the abyss to like overtake the gods because the abyss was like the abyss are like the cursed first children of the gods okay like the air i think is air or duh? uh yeah air is the is the like male god and he like uh didn't like the the chaos of natural evolution so he was like i'm going to create my own gods but because he uh, he's like i'm going to create my own children my own like servants on the world that we've created together okay and but because he was doing it by himself they were just 
chaos. They were just like these, they, they like killed each other and they hated each other. They're like pure hatred. Uh-huh. And so he's like, well, that didn't work. Clearly I screwed something up here. And he like seals them away in this place. He calls the Stygian abyss. Gotcha. And those become demons, right? That's what, that's what demons are. Okay. And so he's like, and so he like goes to his wife with like his hands behind his back and his tail between his legs. He's like, Hey, I tried to make life when I screwed it up. Can you help me? <laughs> she's like, yes, I can help you. And then they created, uh, they like, they like, she's like, what you have to do is you have to watch over the world and influence its natural thing. You can't just create stuff out of nothing. And so they, and, and she was like, but so we'll create these other guys called the Titans and the Titans will help the development of the humans. Okay. Uh, this, she like, we'll create Atlas. He will lift up the world and do all of this stuff. And we will create Prometheus. Prometheus is in charge of human evolution. And one day he was like, Prometheus is like, yeah, but it would be cool if they had magic. The elves have magic and the dwarves have magic. Cause once they created this world, all these sort of other gods started to come in and be like, Hey, you made a world. Can, can I, can I throw something in? And they're like, yeah, you can throw something in. It's a big world. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. yeah. There's, there's room for all sorts of stuff. So the, the dwarf God is like, bam, I got these little stone guys. And they're like, that's cool. I got these and the elf gods come along and they're like, what about if we made these like wafy, sexy dudes who, who, change gender and they're like that's weird but okay <laughs> right and and they're like what if there were some short guys what if there was dragon dudes actually the, the dragon board don't show up for a while okay well you, giants goblins all the other stuff too yeah yeah and then you know well some stuff is just natural evolution right right this this is idea is that they the the um the world can't be directly influenced on by the gods right they're just like the law is they're not allowed to like pass into the material realm. So they have to like subtly influence it. And really there's like, there's like layers of messed up metaphor here because also the gods get their power from belief. So what it is, is I don't like the idea of everything being clean and fact. This is the legends that I'm telling. you. This is what people believe. Oh, okay. Is it, is it literally what happened? I actually don't know. But like when when enough people come together and believe Air and Doc created the world together, does that make it literally true? Uh, that's kind of like the idea for the Theros campaign world. Yeah, yeah, there's some of that. In. It's it's not an uncommon idea, but like like the idea of like, well, the orcs were like led by their evil god Orcus, and they le- led a, like a holy war against the world. Well, did the orcs just believe in Orcus, or did Orcus send them on a holy war? Is it the chicken or the egg? Right. Does it matter? If the fact that they said Orcus has sent us on this holy war and they all believe it, does that mean Orcus now has declared war? Whether he was going to do that in, in quote-unquote reality or not, it's so, it's, it's like so abstract in that way, and I like that. Even though there are literal planes of existence where these gods do hang out and, and you can visit them. But the thing about the planes of existence for me is like, I hate the idea of codifying mm-hmm. too much. Um, I see Reddit posts that are like, how do I, I need to, my players need to get to the astral plane. How can they do that? And I'm like, figure out a way that works for right now because it doesn't have to work a month from now. Like, and, and the things that you put in the astral plane or the ethereal plane or the plane of fire or whatever you want to do, 
they don't have to match up with any other time any other group goes there. Because these are like, we as actual human beings in the real world, we are incapable of understanding the fourth dimensional arrangement that is required for this kind of stuff to exist. Right. But we could experience it, and so could the players in your game. And so when they go there, or the process of going there, they don't need to understand it. It works, and then they're, they're on the plane of fire or whatever, and they experience it. And it doesn't make sense, but it does work. If what I'm saying makes any degree of sense. It's like the experiences they have are true and real, but then if you try and connect the dots in a way that makes any sense, it won't. It can't because we as human beings in the real world are incapable of mapping this in a way that works. Yeah, I think it's that's that's actually some that. good advice for how to run that because you want to have like an otherworldly feel to the planes when they do show up. So having them yeah. be sort of malleable and not concrete in their design can be a positive. Right. They like like it it should operate on dream logic. Yeah, exactly. Like like when you're when you're having a weird dream, you walk from you're you're in your bedroom in the real world and then you walk through a door and you're in your high school and that doesn't make any sense, but that would make sense in a strange and different place. And then if you try to go back, you don't go back to your room, you go to your elementary school. Like that's just how the things work in this world. And you're experiencing it and your experience is true. But trying to make sense of it just leads to madness yeah that's the whole point of astral plane outside of D is it's like this world of dreams right like i i tell players better men than you have tried to understand this and failed right <laughs> this reminds me of a sandman comic where there's a bunch of cats that are trying oh, I love to sandman. dream that they're the dominant they wanted, species yeah, wanted... instead of humans yeah i i love i love the Sandman. I loved the show. The show was really cool. Oh, I haven't seen it yet, but... They did that episode. They did? Oh, cool. Yeah, they did that one. Not only did they do they, they did that one, but they did they released the whole first season, and then they released two more episodes, like, like a month later. It just And they didn't tell anybody. They just stealth-dropped them in there. <laughs> oh, that's it was funny. nuts. I was like, whoa, really? Because I'd finished the show, and I was like, wow, that was good. I'm going to tell everybody about it. And then, like, a week later, my friend was like, hey, they put two new episodes up. Cool. Um, okay, so you got you got tons of gods. You got Aaron does the the main ones for at least how people view them, and then you've got a lot yeah. of racial gods. Is there anything else? Well, Aaron like... uh, Aaron Duh, like left. Oh, okay. A big a big recurring theme is that the gods show up, they do stuff, and then we piss them off and they leave, and they kind of leave another set of gods behind. Oh, okay. Which sort of I think mirrors the way in the real world, like cultures can't rise and they fall like like right now the we believe that the greek gods were myths we call them myths but people actually believed that was how the world worked at one point mm. and now they don't now they believe something else so it's like the greek gods existed and then they left and now the christian god is here okay yeah i see that um right and that's a that's like a recurring theme between a bunch of the pantheons like uh like the elven pantheon, there was like a set of four gods, and then they all had children, and those children are now the gods that everybody prays to because the other gods left. And the actual reality is I think the elf war started because they blame each side of the two elves blame the other for the first group of gods leaving. 
I think that's something that's in Forgotten Realms too, where there's all these like it probably is pantheon. Like there's a giant pantheon that's like old and and dead and on dying now. There's a dragon pantheon that's like that. There's the whatever the mind flayers are doing are kind of like that too. It's all these like dead empires and their their gods are decaying along with them. Um, okay, we already talked about your races a little bit. Um, wanted to talk about like your actual campaign that you're running. I guess we got, did already kind of touch on that. Is there a overarching plot to your current one? I guess two months might not be enough oh, time to yeah. get into deep stuff there for like world. You'd be surprised. Events. Okay, you would be surprised. <laughs> the well, God, there's two going. So there's a group called the Heirs of the Dragon Lord, which is my version of the Cult of the Dragon from Forgotten Realms. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I like to take a lot of Forgotten Realms stuff and change the names that I think they're just stupid. And they are just fine. They're currently trying to summon um, Takesis, and if you're a Dragonlance fan, you know who that is. Um, and if you're not, it's this is this is a spoiler, so I have to be quiet so my wife doesn't hear. It's Tiamat. Okay. <laughs> it's a, <laughs> Right, but they don't know that, and the cult doesn't even know that because she, um, because she's been locked in hell for so long, she kind of uses different personalities to try and reemerge her influence on the world and like get revived. Actually, one of my players, um, he started in my other friend's Curse of Strahd game. Right, he's Dragonborn, and they their backstory. He said he was like, "Can I be the?" the child of the two dragon gods. Cause this, this player is just really into dragons. He's played three dragonborn in different games. Cool. Right. And he's like, can I be, can I be like the son of, of Bahamut and Tiamat? And my DM who is a super newbie is like, yeah, sure. Why not? Right. And so then he's a warlock and he's like, Oh, I have to have a warlock patron. Uh, okay. And he looks in the book and he's like, uh, Tyron Thraxis. That's a cool name. I, I want to serve that guy. Okay. Right. Having no idea who he is. Tyron Thraxis is the bad guy from the old gold box PC AD&D game Pool of Radiance, which I mentioned earlier, um, which is a Forgotten Realms adventure. And Tyron Thraxis is like an elder god who like, I think he possesses a dragon. And then the dragon does a bunch of evil shit and you have to go kill the dragon. Of course. Right. So, so I was like, well, I'll, okay. So when my friend's Curse of Strahd game that he was in wrapped up, uh, we leave in the Vistani, which is... Um, uh, the Vistani can kind of go between Ravenloft and the Prime Material world. Uh-huh. So they're like... I, we describe them getting in a carriage, and they go through basically the Willy Wonka tunnel, right? <laughs> There's okay. technical lights everywhere. Right. And then I grab the DM screen from my friend and put it in front of me, right? And this is after I've been running my game for a couple years, so it's not weird for me to be behind the screen. Uh, But I take the screen from him, and I put it in front of me, and I stand up, and I describe a big black tentacle coming from the Technicolor dreamscape, and it rips open the side of the carriage, and it steals um, Kriv, the dragonborn, and it steals him out. And I actually have my barbarian character, who's like his best friend. I like have him roll strength saves in order to do it, but every time I'm like, he doesn't beat 30. So he fails, uh. <laughs> right? And and so Kriv gets pulled out, and now Kriv is gone. And so the carriage arrives at the prime material of my friend's campaign, and I give the screen back. And then when I started this next campaign, I described the exact same scene. I said, "You are Kriv. 
you're in the carriage and you know this tentacle comes out and Morteth he rolls his strength save and he doesn't get 30 and you are pulled out and you appear on a spaceship that is crashing toward the 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 desert and that spaceship was an illithid spaceship a mind flayer spaceship uh-huh. that was just crashing to the ground and there were three gith yankee on it and the other three players got to play these gith yankee who were, had been trapped cool <laughs> and this dragonborn just appeared next to them and they're like okay can we get out of the restraints they got out of the restraints and it's like crashing and they like fight a mind flayer and then the thing crashes and and crib survives so now he's in my game right and so here's the thing tyron thraxis in my game is also too Oh, so he's get so this player is getting messages from Tyrant Thraxis telling him you need to go to the pool of radiance and you need to become possessed by Tyrant Thraxis and that will give you great power enough to smite your enemies. And the bad guys are also going to the pool of radiance to summon Tachesis because Tachesis is like you need to go to the pool of radiance and summon me in order to crush your enemies. So they're both going there to summon TMA, and neither of them know it. Uh, that's pretty cool i like that a lot (laughs) so there's gonna be this big moment and also my my wife in that game is playing as her first character from my abandoned game oh okay. like like the game that the the lost minds of fandelver game she played this orc bard who raps a lot named eminem right classic (laughs) and so she's she's like now she's level eight nine ten and so I have the Dragonborn show up to fight them, and sh- they're led by one of her old party members, one of my other friends who doesn't play with us anymore, who had a Dragonborn, who, it turns out in their backstory, um, one of my friends has grabbed the player's handbook, and just like, I guess this guy's a paladin, he needs to have a god. What are the gods? And looks in the back and sees Tachesis, Dragonlance. Okay, that sounds cool, and writes it down. Not even knowing what that means. Right. And so I'm like, yes, <laughs> I'm going to take this. And I have. And so I took the old mini out that I haven't used for like three years. And I put it down and my wife goes, is that a placeholder for something? And I go, no, that's him. You look and you see your old friend and he's leading the charge and he's mad. <laughs> and, and so like, I have all of this crazy stuff. Tiamat is doing this because obviously she just wants to be a part of the prime material but also hell is falling apart because hell is adjacent to ravenloft and so my friend was running curse of strahd he was running a ravenloft game and when he finished um normally what happens is the players kill strahd and then strahd is supposed to come back strahd is like dracula right right and so i was like but what would be cool is if we did Castlevania 2. And, and my friend goes, what happens in Castlevania 2? I said, at the end of the first Castlevania, you kill Dracula. And then they spread his body parts all throughout Transylvania. And then because of that, um, the Transylvania starts to decay. It starts to like break down. And, and that's the curse of like Dracula. And so... Simon Belmont has to go around where they buried all the parts of Dracula and, and get them and bring, him, bring back Dracula in order to end the curse. And, and so I was like, I said to my friend, I said, what if that's what we did? What if that's the sequel to our Curse of Strahd game? The parts of Strahd are everywhere and Ravenloft is falling apart. Like, like 
because normally Strahd comes back in like 10 or 20 years. It's been 50 years in Ravenloft and he hasn't shown again. And like stuff starts getting weird. Like parts of the place are falling apart. People are dying and they're coming back to life in ways that they normally don't. Um, uh, like pe- places are aging at different rates. Like some people, like like you'll leave town and you'll come back, and a hundred years have passed for them. Oof. And and you're and and you're a day l- l- late, right? You're like a day older. Like stuff like that is happening. One part of Ravenloft just fell off and and fell into another plane of existence. It's just gone, and no one knows where it is. Uh, a doom train ran through Eberron. What is going on? <laughs> like that's not even part of the same cosmology. What's happening right. here? Like, like this is not Ravenloft is supposed to be a contained space. It's leaking out and it's falling apart. It must be because we th- there's only the only thing holding this place together is Strahd. As horrible and sadistic and and awful as he is and the world was under him, it's actually worse without him. And so part of that is all these like sub villains of Ravenloft from like second edition, like Azalun the Lich. And I invented one called Carmilla, uh-huh. who's like kind of a Castlevania character. Yeah. They're like coming into my world and Lord Soth, especially. Um, they're all like coming into my campaign world because like they're getting out of Ravenloft. They're like, my house is falling apart. I need to go somewhere else. Like Lord Soth is currently building a fortress of undead bodies in the middle of my campaign world and no one is investing. <laughs> that sounds like a really deep shared mythology you have between oh yeah group. i, really I cool. just go i just go nuts on this stuff because i think it's cool because i think the beauty of having a campaign world is that it's a shared world everything that you happen that you do can take place in it and i think it's kind of like a little bit upsetting to not use that yeah it's, it goes back to what you said earlier about like trying to honor your players choices and have them have an impact and when we were talking about mechanics for that but it seems like you're also doing that for the outcomes of adventures and stuff like that that's that's really cool that's a really great way to dm yeah because like i said this this underdark game that i'm running it's got tanner from dawn harbor it's got m&m from my lost minds of fandelver game and it's got crib from our ravenloft game it's got three player characters who are just like from different different campaigns that we've run and they're all hanging out together it's like our own little Avengers. Uh, yeah. And then, and then seven or eight of them are going to all meet up in the middle to deal with this Lord Soth problem because there's a, I think in the book he's a wizard, but I made him into a druid. There's a druid in, uh, against the cult of the reptile god, and he is, players don't know this, he's Morden Kane. Ooh. He's like in disguise, right? And so this is a spoiler for Curse of Strahd. Morden Kanan is in Curse of Strahd. Uh, but he doesn't know who he is, and he's like he like lost his spell book and like Strahd cursed him so he doesn't have a memory of it. Right. So what I'm actually gonna do is I'm gonna have Lord Soth. The uh the, the druid is gonna invite everybody back to Orlane, and he's also gonna invite a bunch of dudes who he's never met, but who he heard or killed a big dragon up north, which is a different campaign that I'm running. Right. And so all these guys are going to come together. And so some of my players will be playing as two characters, right, for this big meeting. Uh-huh. And they're all going to like hang out together for, for like a day. And then, more, and then the druid is going to be like, listen, I'm actually the wizard Morning Canaan. I'm kind of a big deal. Um, and this dude named Lord Soth, he came from a place called Ravenloft. 
he has a magic item called the Codex of Ultimate Influence, which like raises his charisma to 30 and uh like basically gives him the ability to like mind control people. And and like he's unstoppable with this. Mm. We need like we're gonna go confront him and um see what we can learn and and do that. And the players are gonna go do that, and Lord Soth is gonna tear open a hole to Ravenloft and throw Morden Kanan into it so that he can be part of the Curse of Strahd campaign that we already completed and back in time because the way Ravenloft is right now and the way the planes of existence work, the time doesn't match up. Right. So he's actually going to get thrown back before Lord Soth even left to go do what he's doing now, let alone when he throws him in, right? It's going to be like a whole, they're going to freak out because they're going to be like, oh my God, that's because he... We met him and he lost his memory. This happened to him already. And they're going to freak out. And then one of my players is going to, I'm going to tell uh, one of my players that they recognize the codex of uh, ultimate influence because their culture has one. Because one of my players, my wife, one of her characters is playing like a, um, sort of like an, like an, uh, I don't want to say like island girl, like a like a Mesoamerican Aztec uh-huh. girl from like an island, and she's like a priestess. She's kind of like Storm from X Men. Okay, she's like a priestess who like summons storms and like believes in like Quetzalcoatl and stuff like that, okay. right? And so she like left her home so that she could find her sister, uh, who was kidnapped in the, against the cult of the reptile god. And so like now she's gonna like she's gonna see the Codex of Ultimate Influence and be like. Hey, and once they get away from him, they're going to be like, hey, your culture has one of these. You call it the Tablets of Destiny. Uh, you should probably go home and see what's up with that. That might be able to stop this uh, guy. Okay. And then so they're going to go on this big water journey, and then they're going to go on this huge island hex crawl, which is one part X1, the Isle of Dread from like 1981, and one part Tomb of Annihilation from 5th edition. Uh, with a whole bunch of other crap thrown in there. Okay. And so, you know, that's going to happen, and then they're going to stop Lord Soth. And then eventually, after that, I think that's kind of the end of... That's the big end of my meta plot. They'll probably be 15th level by then. And then eventually, they're going to have to go to, back to Ravenloft to put Strahd back. Yeah, I was going to ask what level they were, because this is sounding like some, some pretty epic stuff here. The people in... um. When they go to Chult, they're going to be 8th level, and the people in the Underdark just got to 10th. Okay, so decently high. They can start doing, like, world stuff at that yeah. level. Right, and the people who... They, I, I say they killed a dragon. They haven't killed the dragon yet, but they're going to when we get around to it, because some of these players are all the same group of players. A lot of it happens because of, like, weird scheduling stuff where one player is like, I can't play for a couple months, so we get this other guy, and now he's part of the group, and so I I didn't want to drop him. I was all set to run the the Chult campaign. We're all going to go to Chult, this this big island. It's going to be a big hex crawl. We're all going to be level eight. But this guy has like only played D&D once or twice. Right. And he's never played with us. So I didn't want to drop him in on like, hey, first of all, here's all this stuff with Morden Kanan and Lord Soth and Ravenloft that you don't know anything about. Now you're going to go on a d- desert hex crawl for the next four months of your life. And by the way, you're level eight. So good luck. <laughs> like, I didn't, I didn't want to do that to this poor guy. So I was like, let's just start a whole new campaign with brand new level one characters. And uh, you're all fighting a dragon. There's a dragon who moved in the area and he screwed everything up. 
Man, there's so many things going on there. That's in two months. Yeah. I actually, I actually think that the reason everything is starting to happen at one time is because I think the world's going to end. Hmm. Uh, because I've already, I've already like announced to my players, um, that at toward the end of 2024, which is hopefully when all of this stuff kind of converges and wraps up. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm going to stop running fifth edition or the new edition that they're coming out with. I'm I'm like not, and I'm not going to run Pathfinder or anything else. I'm literally going to close the book on this world and put it away and not run it. Um, just cause like, like I said, a lot of the stuff that's in it is there because it's there in D and D and not because I'm excited or passionate about it. Right. And um, when you sort of build a big map over four years, there are like ideas in here that I just don't like anymore because I came up with them in 2018, 2019, right? They're not how I would do things now, but it's canon for the world that we're playing in. So, and I don't want to retcon it and mess with it too much because that some of my players' backstories and stuff rely on this. So, so I think it'll be easier to just like, number one, I'm going to stop running the system because I don't know if I'm going to like the one D&D system uh-huh. that they're doing. Uh, and so I might just work on my own, like, offshoot that combines the best of what I like of 5e and 1D&D and, um, Tales of the Valiant, which is, like, Cobalt Press's thing, and, right. and I might do that, or by then, the MCDM RPG is probably gonna be out, and I might just run in that world and have fun. You gotta do Torches I and Rations. Might... I, well, yeah, we're probably gonna play Torches and Rations. I'm actually definitely gonna play it at the convention I'm running. You're running a convention? No, I'm 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 running at a convention. Oh, okay. Right. I'm like going to a convention to sell my books and right, yeah, stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, everyone's got to do that. I, I when when people like my dad are like, "What is this thing you're doing?" I'm like, "It's the nerd flea market." <laughs> he goes, "Oh, okay." Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> yeah, I, I feel like it's more like a show floor kind of like I don't know. Not the not this one. <laughs> okay. It's more like a flea market. All right. Yeah. Fair enough. I've seen like some stuff that's like that. It, like at a state fair, there's like a flea market section, and then there's like a show floor section. That's like a bit of both. Oh yeah, we don't have anything that fancy. Yeah, well, and that's <laughs> that's usually for like food and like cooking implements and that kind of thing. Was what I saw there. Well, uh, anyway, it's not not relevant to what you're doing. <laughs> um. Yeah, I also wanted to talk about like uh, the title of game stuff you're doing. So you have a uh, CU Space Cowboy released, um, and that's kind of obvious what that's based off of, Cowboy Bebop. Um, yep. How does that uh, yep. work as a system? Oh, it's it's completely different. Uh, so it's partially inspired by like Power by, by the Apocalypse games, mm-hmm. uh, where like the core idea is that you have you don't just have binary pass and fail. You have success partial success or success with complication and then failure. Right. Right. And so the uh, PVTA games use 2D6 um, and then their numbers are all always the same. I use different dice for different stats. If you're, um, what are they called? I can't remember now because I've been thinking about Dwarves and Elves. Um, they're called Muscles, Moves, Brains, and Cool, which are actually the stats directly taken from the Ghostbusters RPG. Uh-huh. Okay. And you assign when you create your character, you assign a D6, a D8, a D10, and a D12 to your stats. Right? So your muscles might be D12 and your brains is D6. Okay. Okay. 
And so anytime you do a muscles thing, like break stuff or get in a fist fight or handle a big weapon or knock someone out, you would roll your muscles stat. You also have a talent, which you get to make up. Talents are like, what, what am I really good at? Like, uh, here are just examples of muscles talents. Break stuff, eat food, elbow grease, kick open a door, kicking, get these hands, lift stuff, <laughs> pro wrestling, yeet. Great. That's, uh, those some right? And so it's like, right am there. I yeeting? Then I get an extra D4. <laughs> okay. Am I, if I'm not yeeting, I don't get a D4, right? And so, you know, you can figure out how you want to do this. They, they can be as narrow and specific or broad as you want. Like, like you can say kicking a door. And now I'm really, if I have to kick in a door, I get that D4. But if I just write kicking, now I get the D4 anytime I kick. And so um, you're sort of encouraged to like, if I have a D12 muscles, I'm probably going to do pretty good all the time. I don't necessarily need the bonus. But if I have D6 brains, maybe I'm not the smartest guy in the room, but I'm this hyper-specific thing or this, this broad thing, like math. If it has math, I get a D4. Whereas quantum physics is something that might not come up very often. And this is, this is part of what I talk about when your player characters make choices. Mm-hmm. They're wasting their choice if you don't incorporate that. I always ask the players, what did you write down for your talents? Uh-huh. And then I write, if, if I write down some of them. Now, there's four talents per character. So that's like 12 to 16 talents, depending on how many players you have, probably. You can't incorporate every one every game. It's, that's impossible. No, of course not. But you know, you can make it, you, you make the effort, right? Like, uh, one player, he wrote, he, he wrote, I'm good at opening things with my teeth. <laughs> and I'm like, I need to find a place for that. Uh... It's too weird not to use. <laughs> That's what he wrote. I don't question it. I'm, but was like the, the bomb diffuser in like a bag of chips or something? Like, what? I, have, I don't know. I don't know. I don't remember what I did to fix that, but I did. I let him. I know I let him use it. Okay. Uh, what else is in there? There's there's debts or regrets. So you have to choose. You either messed up really bad in your past, or you owe someone a lot of money. Because you're a, you're by definition a bounty hunter. Right. You you take people and you uh take them into the police industrial state for money, right? Because they just don't have enough cops for everybody who, who's done bad things. Um, and so, like, normal people don't do that. They get a job somewhere. But you can't have a job because your trauma from your dead partner is haunting you. Or you owe, like, you owe so much money because of a cybernetic arm implant that you had to get. That, like, you, this corporation lords it over you. And if you don't pay them back, eventually they send assassins after you. Right. Right. And so, like, I, I can't get a normal job because a normal job would be able to sustain me eating, but I actually have to pay $60,000 for my robot arm. So there's that. There's a whole equipment list. Uh, it doesn't really have hit points, but it does have wounds, and you can take five wounds before you fall unconscious, and then you're just unconscious. Like, you can't die. Okay. I was, I was like, unless you want to die. If you're like, this is actually the narratively, like, satisfying time for me to die then you then you can die if you want but like for the most part like what happens in spike spiegel that dude falls out of like a ninth story window and at the end of the episode he's wrapped up in bandages and in the next episode he's okay yeah i feel like that is a bit of a a shift in rpgs to move away from 
death as a a threat to your character and just having unconsciousness be enough? It just depends on the genre, I think. Yeah. Because Crawl has death, but that's because, you know, death is important. But Crawl also has resurrection mechanics built right in. It's like you you can take the body to the church, and for a thousand gold times their level, you can get them revived. That's probably not worth it for a first level character, but if you have like a fourth or fifth level character and you have enough money, that might be worth it. And also, the other thing is that in Crawl and the world of Crawl, and I wish this was something that I could really just put into my D&D game, bodies that are left unburied become undead. That's how undead happens. Ah, okay. Right? So it's like, yeah, my friend died in the dungeon, and like after a week, he will turn into a zombie. He will turn into a zombie if we don't bury him. So it's like, if you had to run because there was an ogre and he killed your friend and you're like, I don't even have time to get the body. Let's go. Let's leave. If you go back a week later, now there's an ogre and a zombie <laughs> and he has all your friend's stuff on him. Right. Uh, I, I guess one of my questions there is what happens if you like chop up the body, but leave it there? Uh, well, it can. I mean, the, the, the process of them becoming undead is like magic, right? It's chaos magic. So they can just reanimate and become like a Frankenstein thing. Okay. Or eventually, well, here's the thing. Eventually, they'll decay into a skeleton, and then the skeleton can put it back to itself back together. Oh, yeah, I guess that, uh, yeah. There's you no know? real connection there at that point. Yeah. A big thing with Crawl is, like, I got, I got tired of, like, realism in games uh-huh. in, a, in a weird way. It's like... I didn't want to deal with... I, I put a rust monster in a room one time. And uh, the rust monster is like 10... It's like a 2 by 2 It's like a 10-foot big creature, right? And every exit into this room was like a 5-foot door. And one of the players is like, how did this even get in here? And I was like, how would you... And I, and I, I pulled the, the BS move, which is, how would your character figure that out? Right? That's a question you as the player are asking, but the reality is, you actually have no method of finding out how that would be because you weren't here when it wasn't here and you didn't see it come in. Right. How would your character get that information? Which is a cop-out, admittedly. And, and I, I wanted an explanation for that rather than... The, the answer is, I wanted a rust monster in this room. <laughs> I don't care how it got in here. Fight, you have to fight the rust monster. Right. And so the idea I came up with for Crawl and that world is that Places that are left abandoned generate monsters. Like there's no, if there's no life and order in it, chaos overtakes the place. So if you leave a place alone long enough, like rat men and beast dudes show up. It's just like early germ theory where instead of germs being like these microscopic organisms, it was instead like germs came from rats and insects which instead of having their own reproductive cycles just spawned out of piles of garbage exactly exactly stuff like stuff like that stuff that literally isn't true but in a magical fantasy world could be true yeah like links twice when you're like bad things spawn in places that are left unattended because that's the forces of chaos at work and they're like right the forces of chaos those are bad right (laughs) i I assume so (laughs) And uh, and and the and and the same thing with like the players fought um, a bunch of like uh, rat dudes with with swords. And one of the players was like, can I take their swords? And I'm like, well, these are creatures of chaos. So their swords are chaos. Uh, 
Like, if you grabbed it and tried to use it, you would have disadvantage on every attack that you made with. Uh And if you tried to take it out of the dungeon, the sunlight would make it evaporate. And they're like, whoa, that's really cool. And it's like, actually, I just don't want you to steal weapons from everybody. (laughs) Why does that work for treasure, then? Treasure isn't born of chaos. Oh, okay. It's, It's lost and abandoned in these places. Gotcha. Like not every like like a a monster could have a magic weapon that they found, and then if they die, you could you could get it. This is also reminding me of the like the theater concept of like a ghost light that you leave in the theater to keep the ghosts away. Yeah, there's all there's all kinds of like weird superstitious stuff that the world has had, and I'm just I just think it's interesting to draw on all that and make it and make it real. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the sunlight destroying those kind of monsters is definitely a very common thing in folktales. Yeah. Cause that's the other thing. It's like, well, if there's all these like rat dudes and like chaos beast men and medusas and stuff in literally like a floor down in this like castle, why aren't they out in the countryside and stuff like that? Well, they, they get destroyed by sunlight. So that's why. Yeah, it's got a really, I mean, you were talking about, like, Castlevania. It's got a really Castlevania feel to it as well, when you think about it that way. Mm-hmm. And they can come out at nighttime, so then the monsters have this, like, incentive to, like, kill the sun somehow, so that they can do whatever they want. Yeah, like, like they could come out at night. I haven't really addressed that. Crawl doesn't have any overland travel yet. <laughs> it's just, there's the dungeon, you go in there. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I'm like, I'm like, okay, you're in town. What do you want? Okay, now you're in the dungeon. Well, I mean, it's in the right. it's in the system name. You already know what you're doing. Yeah, I mean, you can do a hex crawl with it eventually. Is part of the thing. That's a that's a different type of crawl. Right, it's true. <laughs> but also, I'm like, I'm you know, I'm still tweaking the system. I'm still adding stuff to the equipment list and figuring out exactly how I want some of the numbers and stuff to work. So like. When I when I play test, I want to get as much juice for the squeeze as I'm getting. Mm-hmm. So I I kind of tell people I'm like, you can do some role playing and stuff, but like we can't spend an hour talking around the campfire. We got to get stuff done because I got to see how this works. And a lot of the players are like, cool, let's go. Like uh, they completed they completed ten rooms in like two hours uh, last time, and they were like they were like, can we keep playing? And I'm like, I actually literally have to go to work like right now. I'm gonna be late. <laughs> so no we can't keep playing and they're like when can we play again because because me and him we just went through 10 rooms that's 10 xp that's enough to level up <laughs> that's cool uh so is this the the same like basic system as the space cowboy with like the yes okay yes it's it's the same uh like dice attribute thing i na- i renamed them to strength and dex and charisma and intelligence and uh mm-hmm. And I got a lot of, like, a lot of the CU Space Cowboy stuff is, like, goofy is the wrong word, but it's, like, loose. Lighthearted. It's, like, it says on the thing, it says sci-fi, space bounty hunter, jazz fusion role-playing game, right? Like, break stuff is the thing. You wouldn't call it that in a, like, dark fantasy game that looks like Bloodborne or Elden Ring, right? No, vandalize. Like, the, the thing to break into computer systems is called hack the planet. That's appropriate for CU Space Cowboy. It's not appropriate for crawl. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, I was going to say earlier that that sounds really similar to how Savage Worlds has the the setup for different attributes. 
like a different die. There's a, there's a little bit of Savage Worlds in the DNA of all this. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's different enough with the way you're having the the talents be distributed. Like I get that, and the the debts and regrets is obviously different as well. A big a big weird thing with me is that like I spent a lot of the like late 2000s just reading RPG books and wishing I could play. Uh huh. Just like I read every system and every license that I could get my grubby little pirate hands on. Did you read through the Ghostbusters books eventually? Oh, I I, I ran Ghostbusters. Oh, okay. Yeah, Ghost, Ghostbusters is great. It's one of my biggest. All oh, right, yeah, you said you ran it for your family. That's right. I don't remember. Yeah, I ran it for like my dad and brother. I ran it for a while. I tried to run it online. It didn't really work because one of the things with Ghostbusters is it has a ghost die. Uh huh. It's a D six dice pool system. It's actually the first dice pool system ever invented. Uh huh. Um, and one of the dice is the ghost die. It's a regular white die, but the six is the Ghostbusters symbol. And every time you roll, you roll the ghost die. And if it comes up the ghost symbol, something bad happens. Even if the number is like really good, if the ghost die happens, it's like, yeah, you did it really good, but now something bad happens. And if you roll badly and you get the ghost die, something really, really bad happens. Gotcha. That's kind of an idea I want to implement for sand which is kind of a game we're working on on the side um i have like extreme adhd so i just like keep coming up with new ideas and projects uh, it's uh, a common thing for inventors uh I was... sand is sort of like our weird dune uh-huh. clone uh dune like the desert planet the yeah the yeah, arrakis like the, thing the book in the movie. okay yeah, yeah yeah like arrakis we're like, what if it's like it's that it's that and it's Tatooine and it's like Trigun influenced and stuff like that. And it's like humans crashed here. We're just trying to get by. It's all D sixes. There's no hit points. You make up all the equipment. Okay. And and the idea is that we would build like thirty six hexes and you would go through them randomly and do a bunch of stuff. And they would like really highly interconnect. Like 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 you wouldn't ma- you wouldn't ever make up your own encounters for sand you would just ro- run them out of the book and like each encounter would be like you get this item from doing it if you did it right and then a different encounter would be like if you have this item from encounter xy then this happens instead okay so this is more like, be, like highly gloomhaven or something like that kind of it's it's very like almost that kind of like advanced board gamey thing but we're framing it as a role-playing game, and it would—I um, want to do it in a box set. It would have like a rule. It would have like a rule book, and then an encounter booklet, and maybe it would have a bunch of like X tiles. Yeah, I was thinking. Yeah, you'd want to have like just maps you pull with out. Its own dice. Yeah. But you know, that's all way in the future. Gotcha. Um, I was thinking like the the ghost eye mechanic also sounds like how ten candles handle stuff where oh yeah there's something like that in there too. yeah yeah okay yeah i've read that one cool oh i've if there's an rpg the chances are really good that i have read it <laughs> i just i devour this stuff i am on exalted funeral and spear witch all the time getting new stuff i'm really into fist right now i'm super into wolves upon the coast by luke gearing and his uh monster supplement monsters volume two monsters and that's just insane that is the best two-page spread of it's a it's a monster book and the spread of goblins and gnolls is the best two-page spread i have read in any rpg in the last four years cool uh what did you say this one was called again it's called volume two monsters and 
And it's basically the monster supplement for a big product called Wolves Upon the Coast by Luke Gearing. All right, writing it down for myself. Yeah, which Wolves Upon the Coast is a humongous hex crawl. It's 250 pages. It has no formatting and it has no art. And it's $50. <laughs> Woo, okay. And it's amazing. <laughs> once, once you get into it, like, I'm sure. It might, be the, it might be the best RPG product released in like the last two years. All right, there. I guess there's one obscure one that I've been trying to get someone's opinion on. Maybe you've played it or read it. Chin the Warring what States. I have not heard of it. Okay. So I was trying to find an RPG that's set, like, based around playing, um, like, uh, in the Warring States, like, ancient China period, but not necessarily, like, Wushu stuff. A lot of them focus on for that. Um, so this one's more like okay. a historical setting for that era. Four bucks, that's not bad. I assume it says right? Uh, I'm not actually sure. But it's got no reviews. I read about it when I like just trying. It has to no review. It, here's why it has no preview. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. I don't know how many pages this thing had. Yep. It's just got. Oh, I don't get the I don't get the bestiary as part of it. Oh man, that's rough. That's a rough product to put out, my dude. Come on. <laughs> yeah, and then the the author is like a looks like French, so I'm not even sure if like is this translated well. <laughs> It's another issue I'm looking out for it. Okay, well, I was hoping you'd had a, re- a recommendation for that, but it sounds like no, you're not. I'm, okay. no. no, Chinese history is like my blind spot. Yeah, I've been getting really into it lately, so I'm trying to find an RPG that would work. Oh. Well, yeah, you don't you don't want the Dynasty Warriors take. You want something a little more gritty. I mean, I I guess I wouldn't be like terribly upset by that, but I was hoping there was an alternative. <laughs> like, there's plenty of the wushu things that I could pick from. Yeah, and you could. Yeah, you don't you don't want to kill fifty guys in one attack. That's not what you're. I, and you could even just use D and D for that. You don't need a different set, like a different system. Yeah, you could use fifth edition just fine for that. You could use fourth edition. You could use. I, don't know, I found like a bunch of like things that were adaptions of other systems for that type of setting. Um, so I feel like I was covered there, but like trying to find a, a system that was grounded for that was difficult. Yeah, the like Southeast Asia um, RPG scene is like a big blind spot for me. Um, I'm seeing a lot of people from it popping up on my Twitter, which is very interesting, and I just don't, I I, I just don't have a lot of time to engage with it. Which is unfortunate. Yeah. Otherwise, another thing about like Asia RPGs is China doesn't really do that. Like they don't have any like internally produced RPGs. I would probably, um, I would probably say that they definitely exist. We just don't see them over here. Right. Yeah. I suppose that's a, a better way of putting it. There aren't any that have reached outside of the. Yeah. To country. get them translated is probably like a huge a huge pain in the butt well like i mean i mean wizards of the coast is having problems getting D translated in other countries and it's the biggest one that exists mm-hmm. yeah like black eye is the big one in germany um just because mm-hmm. it's aren't they ju- didn't they just put out an english version of that yeah it was pretty recent they were only in german for a long time i would like to read that although it probably just turns out being warhammer <laughs> i don't know enough about it but I, I know I know the Dark Eye is a D one hundred, I think, and I know 
Warhammer Fantasy roleplay is definitely D100. Oh, okay. I thought you meant like for the like the setting aspect of it. No, no, no. I'm sure the setting is completely different, but I'm sure mechanically it probably resembles Warhammer Fantasy War okay. roleplay. Yeah, I see what you mean now. Yeah. But I could be talking out of my butt. I don't know. I'd have to read it. Well, uh, going from that, one of the other things I, I usually ask people is like, do they have any interesting mechanics for their world? Um, and you've got all this stuff that you're designing yourself. Are you bringing any of that into your D&D campaign as well? Oh, yeah. I have I have put so much homebrew stuff in my game that it, like, sort of only resembles D&D in a lot of the base class and ancestry design, right? Mm-hmm. Um, like, I have, I have homebrew weapons that do all kinds of crazy stuff. Um, my humans are actually homebrew um, stat-wise. Oh. They have, um, I give them, I give them the ability to, um, they can sense magic by touching and, and by smelling it. Okay. Like, uh, and they're the only ones that can do that. I think by the rules, anyone can like just touch a magic item and be like, Hey, this is magical. I know this is a magic item. So then I can, now we know we have to identify it and do all the stuff. I just give that to humans because they, they sort of evolved naturally and were gifted magic by Prometheus. They, unlike uh, dwarves and elves and stuff like that, who were born out of magic, like they're literally magically created. I see. And that's how they reproduce. The dwarves reproduce by magically, they ground up rocks and stuff like that. And the elves reproduce, they, they, they hold hands and they kiss, is what they do. And boom, you're pregnant. Cool. <laughs> and you're pregnant for two years. <laughs> oh, man. And the, and the first human that that happened to freaked the hell out. Because they were like, when does this end? And they're like, oh, about two years. And they're like, two years? For a half-elf you were talking about? Yeah. Oh, yeah. well, okay. Because, uh, oh, this, this, goes, this goes deep. As part of the war, one of my players, in their backstory, they set off a, like, magical bomb that, like, infected all of the elves and made them unable to reproduce with each other. So there hasn't been an elf born in almost a thousand years. Wow. So every elf that's in my game is at least a thousand years old. Like you can't have a, a like a non like a regular elf. Okay. Baby anymore. It's just and and like the player regrets it and it's part of his tragic backstory and all that. It's partially inspired by the the Solarian and Krogan genophage from Mass Effect if you have ever played that. Yeah, I was thinking that the the reproduction outside of the race is also like the um I'm forgetting what the blue people are called. The uh, the Asari. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, there's some of that. Too. But yeah, definitely the, the genophage portion. So yeah, of there's that. some ideas of that in there. But like, um, yeah, so like humans can like sense magic. If if there's a, anytime the players find anything in one of my games, they're like, hey, human, touch this. And it's like your arm, when you touch it, your arm vibrates like you just hit your funny bone off of something. And you smell like burning ozone. And they're like, yeah, this is magical. So it sounds like you could also like, train like just a normal animal to do that. No, because they don't have the sense to do it. Oh, they weren't gifted magic. Only humans. They weren't. I see. Right, right. Like because of the, the unique interaction of like humans being evolved and then they were like given the ability to cast magic. Like this is like a unique property of them because they, they're like supernaturally attuned to it through like through magic. Mm-hmm, right. Well, it's it's all magic, however deep you go, I yeah. guess. But like just a different just a different it's not inside of them, but it is part of them, if that makes any sense. Right. 
as so half elves don't have that ability because they have like the uh, elf half elf. elves don't get that because they're more elf than human. Right. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Thank you for for talking about that. Did you have anything else you wanted to to talk about? Uh, no, I think that just about does it. I talked all about my games. I talked about my homebrew nonsense and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, you've also given some really good advice. Usually I ask people if they have any other advice they want to give. You've already given a oh, yeah. I, ton of good I, stuff I, here. All about that. I, I have, I, I just want people to run their games better. And all you really got to do is think about it a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and not, not worry so much about the game part of it because the game the game part can can be complicated and i think people get too wrapped up in like i gotta balance this encounter and it's like no you don't just throw stuff against the wall and see what sticks you'll get a feel for it eventually because it's an art it's not a science right and 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 it doesn't matter how balanced something is in one way whether it's perfectly balanced or it's overtuned the good a good day for the players where they're really thinking on their feet can crush a, an encounter that is like twice their CR and a bad day for the players. They can get smushed by something that is weaker than. Them. Yeah. I, I had a group of eighth level players. They fought two bullets, two land sharks in the desert. Mm -hmm. Right. And the, the, the fighter character ran. I, I, I made a mistake, I think, because I almost never do like, terrain or like weird features in my stuff a lot of my people will criticize me for this but a lot of my fights take place in a featureless box boxy room uh -huh. and my players like that they just they're just cool with that and they don't mind and so i don't push it right yeah but this one time they were in the desert and i was like oh i laid down my wet erase grid and i i was like oh and there's a big rock here and so immediately the big rock becomes like a point of contention three of the players climb up on the rock. One is sneaking around to look for it. Like now they're using the rock and I'm like, cool. They're using the rock. But so the fighter character is like, I'm a melee fighter. He has a plus two Vorpal sword that gives him psychic damage. If he doesn't use it. Right. It's like a cursed magic. Uh, item, and okay. it talks to him I and see. it does all this crazy stuff. Right. And, and, and he likes it and it's a big plot point. So, so he likes using it. So he doesn't mind running. And, he, and with his strength, he has like plus 11 to hit. So he almost never misses. So it's fine. And if he gets a 20, he cuts the head off of almost anything. Right. Right. So he runs to the bullet, bullet and he starts attacking it. And the other players are like hanging out on top of the rock. Like there's, and they're swinging spells and doing stuff from up there, but they're like watching him fight the land shark. And he's like, I think I got this. I got, the, I hit this one like two or three times. It's a, it could only have so many hit points. It'll be fine. And then the other one comes up behind him. Right. Because he's the guy on the ground and everyone else is on the rock. Right. And so he gets double teamed by these two bullets and they only do like, I think maybe they did like 2d8 damage and one of them missed or something like that. Right. But he just got like sandwiched between these two and he just got screwed over. He was down and then he attacked him again and he got two failed death saves and it, it was over. He was dead. Right. And the players were like, when I was like driving to work after that, my wife was like, what, what could, what happened there? And I'm like, Francis ran in like an idiot and none of you backed him up. <laughs> and she's like, well, what was I supposed to do? Go down there? And I'm like, probably that would have helped. <laughs> Cause then the other bullet would have attacked you and not him. And he wouldn't have died. 
Now it was fine because for plot reasons, they came across a different guy and he, they had a scroll of revivify. So the player didn't lose anything. And I ended up fast forwarding through a bunch of the desert stuff. Uh But you know, they like, like they, nobody was upset when it happened either. The fighter player was like, I'm well, I'm screwed up. I died. Oh, well. And, but they were just like interested in like, what could we have done different to not have that happen? And I'm like, you made a tactical error. You didn't play well. At the end of the day, that's what it was. These guys were combined were CR 10. You're level eight. It wasn't that big of a challenge. It was not that big of a deal. You fought tougher things before and made it out just fine. But for whatever reason today, he didn't retreat at the right time. Nobody backed him up. You didn't do it. You just didn't play well and somebody died. And that's just the way the dice roll sometimes or the decisions you make. I was thinking of that. There's like a scene in Tremors, I think, where there's like a, a kid that's out like in the, the dirt away from a, a building. So they have to like distract <clears throat> the, the the monsters. The so they, yeah, so that the kid can get safe to safety. I was thinking they could have done something yeah. like that. <laughs> yeah, they could have they could have done anything, but they they just like well, I think one of them was literally like, I'm gonna wait and see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> like, what do you think is going to happen, dude? And like, I don't know. I'm going to see. And then if he... That's <laughs> uh, that's always my reaction when I see someone in, in you know imminent danger of their life. I'm just going to wait and see it didn't what happens. Help. It probably didn't help that, for plot reasons, the fighter had an item called the crown of Asmodeus, and the other guy worked for Asmodeus, and his secret agenda was to steal the crown of Asmodeus. Oh, okay. Running like no, a probably that paranoia campaign there. He kept as as he was dying, like that other player is looking at me, like, should I just? And I'm like, what do you want to do? <laughs> and he's like, I run down. Uh, he's he's dead, right? Dead, dead. He's not in death saves. I'm like, yeah, he's dead. He's like, okay, so he's unattuned from the crown. And I go, yeah. He's like, I take the crown and I teleport away. <laughs> and the other player's like, what? And he's like, I work for Asmodeus. Bye. Well. Uh, yeah, there you go. And that was my idea to make him work for that, for Asmodeus, by the way. I had planned for it to happen way later. I had planned for it to happen at this big showdown at the Pool of Radiance. <laughs> but Tanner screwed up and died. So. <sighs> so then that guy had to make a wizard. Yeah, that's a good story, definitely. Um, yeah, anything else you want to touch on? Uh, no, I think I'm good. Okay. Um. I was just thinking that uh, this episode is probably going to come out uh, July 19th. Uh, okay. So it's probably going to be after your, your June convention. Do you have any like late July or August uh, conventions that you want to do? Um, no, I don't have anything planned for the summer. But hopefully by mid-July, we will have Ceres, the Planet That Never Sleeps, which is the setting and bounty module for CU Space Cowboy, will be up by then. And I will be on time with my patreon updates for my dungeon 23 so if you go to my patreon at patreon.com slash title wave games you can get um for one dollar you can get semi-monthly updates on my dungeon 23 dungeons which is just every day i'm doing a dungeon room and then at the end of the month i'll put it in a document and i put the map there and then you can run it you can play it um and you also get cool stuff like the beta of crawl is on there uh, there's a few uh, bounty modules for CU Space Cowboy on there and uh, some other miscellaneous stuff. Uh, everything else should be available at um, our physical store is store.tidalwavegames.com. 
Uh, Exalted Funeral is about to get copies of CU Space Cowboy in. So by July, those will definitely be on their store um, if you want to get it from there and pick up some other cool stuff. Um, uh, And yeah, I think that's it. All right, cool. Yeah, thanks, Onslaught 6. This is great. And yeah, you've got your own website too. Um, but yeah, Tidal Wave Games is probably the, the best place to find all the, the gaming. Yeah, TidalWaveGames.com will link you to everything, including all the storefronts. We have a drive-thru. We have an itch. We have all that stuff. Onslaught6.com is like a dumping ground for my thoughts about RPGs. And also you can find a link there where I post everything that I've ever done like creatively, including all my music. All right, cool. Yeah, thanks a lot. This is really good. All right, thank you. We are looking for more people to interview. So if you're a DM or you know a DM that might be interested in coming on the show, you can check out more about how to apply at www.gocorral.com slash STS. Let me let me get my board. Okay, yeah, we can. This will be one of those things that we nope, can edit this is out. My art order spreadsheet. That's very important. Not what I need right now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's telling me what art. Uh, let's see, it's effect the Jace Dungeon Twenty Three Runes of Castle Gogar, The Heart of Dark Crawl Version O Three Crest Call. BX Cyberpunk hat. Altered and Monument. Cybernetics catalog. Porches and Ration. These are just all the side projects I have. Yeah, no, I, I recognize the names from going on your website. So, Torches and Rations sounded like the funniest one to me. Torches and Rations is great. You can go get it right now. It's I think it's free. Is it free or is it adult? I think it's free. I mean, Torches if it's a dollar, it's basically got, free. I just got mad at somebody. Somebody literally said to me, if you're not tracking torches and rations, you're not playing D&D. That's a real thing someone said to me on Twitter. And I got so upset that I made a game where the only things you do are track torches and rations. <laughs> so is this like a like a beer and peanuts game? What's the... It can be. It's... I don't know. I haven't really played it. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my god. Designed a game and put it up on the internet, but you've never actually touched it to play it. Well, look, you, what? I'm going to get four people together to play torches and rations? Come on, man. Uh, you know what? Fair. 